the greatest of fools, a daring young man on the dying Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hold my beer, I'm doing it! Eh, never mind, I don't even drink. I'm not that exciting of a guy, so this probably won't be the most exciting podcast, but I hope it will be interesting for those of you who appreciate historical context. In any event, welcome to the first episode. Today I'll be looking at an article from 150 years ago this week. On January 30th, 1868, the Syracuse Daily Journal published an article that took up about three and a half columns on page two. Here are the summary headlines at the top of the first column. Senator Morton's great speech on Reconstruction. Tremendous refutation of democratic falsehoods. Overwhelming vindication of the Republican Congress. Humanity, the policy of the radicals. The copperheads endeavoring to deprive the weak of all protection. I thought the article was important enough for me to transcribe and post on the blog, but then it occurred to me that the text might be online somewhere, so I searched, and sure enough, I found it on HathiTrust. It turns out that those three and a half columns are just a small portion of the whole speech. Morton begins by saying, If I had not been referred to by my honorable friend from Wisconsin in the debate yesterday, I should not desire to speak on this question, especially at this time. When he said, my honorable friend from Wisconsin, he's talking about Senator Doolittle. A couple things you need to know right off the bat. When he says honorable friend, he's being sarcastic, really sarcastic. You'll see what I mean. Second, Doolittle is a Democrat and Morton is a Republican. Now, if you don't know a lot about the politics of this time, just understand that you need to throw out all the assumptions you have about Democrats and Republicans because the alignments of those two parties bear no resemblance to their modern incarnations. Remember, the Republicans were the party of Lincoln. They had, however reluctantly, come to the conclusion that to end the war and restore the Union, it was absolutely necessary to eradicate the institution of slavery. In the wake of the war, they supported full emancipation backed up by military protection of freed slaves, along with limitations on the political enfranchisement of former rebels. The Democrats, on the other hand, just wanted the southern states restored to business as usual, albeit without slavery. So the papers of this time are chock full of Republicans and Democrats squabbling over the Reconstruction Bill. Now remember, These papers were remarkably partisan, so you can tell at a glance that, for instance, the Journal was a Republican newspaper because it was presenting Morton's speech in a positive light. So, back to the speech. 
Remember how Morton began by referencing Doolittle? Turns out he was referring to a speech that Doolittle gave in the Senate the previous day. I found that speech on archive.org. The title page of the pamphlet reads as follows. An appeal to the Senate to modify its policy and save from Africanization and military despotism the states of the South. Speech of Honorable James R. Doolittle of Wisconsin, delivered in the Senate of the United States, January 23, 1868. Washington, D.C., printed by order of the Congressional Democratic Executive Committee, 1868. Yeah, so you can tell this ain't going to be easy, but I think it's important that we slog through this particular sewer. Oh, one more thing before I get started. We're just a couple of weeks away from the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Johnson wanted to soft-pedal Reconstruction, so the Republicans wanted him impeached, and the newspapers are full of that story. So, as you listen to these speeches, pay special attention to any mention of Johnson, Grant, Sheridan, and Stanton, and in general, political office as it relates to the Constitution. Here goes. Speech of Honorable J.R. Doolittle. The bill, H.R. number 439, additional and supplementary to an act entitled An Act to Provide for the More Efficient Government of the Rebel States, passed March 2, 1867, and the act's supplementary thereto was read the second time by its title. Mr. Doolittle said, Mr. President, in moving the reference of this bill to the Committee on the Judiciary, I desire to say that I shall move to amend the ordinary motion of reference by adding certain instructions which I shall send to the Chair. Mr. President, there is more involved in this measure than in any other, all others, perhaps. I see in it a complete overthrow of the Constitution in ten states of the Union. I see in it a practical dissolution of the Union. I see a republic, in form at least, still remaining north of the Potomac. I see an empire rising south of it. I see in it the realization of the wildest dream of Calhoun, a dual executive, a president to execute the laws in the Republic of the North, a military dictator, independent of the president, to make as well as execute laws in the Negro empire of the South. My heart is oppressed with a sorrow too deep for full utterance. And yet, with the indulgence of the Senate, I would make a last appeal to modify this policy. I deem it a duty which I owe to the country to do so now, before this bill goes to the committee. For in that committee I have no voice, and I know when its report is once made, and they are fully committed to the measure, it will be too late. I fear I am already powerless to influence the judgment of the Senate. But as I love my country and her republican institutions, as next to the God of heaven, I have worshipped them from my youth up, and as I verily believe, although I pray heaven I may be mistaken, they are now in most imminent peril of utter destruction if the bill shall become a law. I know that senators, if they do not agree with me, will pardon me for giving expression to those earnest convictions which I could hardly repress if I would. As I can have no hope that Congress will wholly abandon its Reconstruction policy for the purpose of asking the Senate to consider the question of modifying it so far as to limit Negro suffrage to certain classes, I submit the following motion, which I now send to the Chair, 
and request the secretary to read. The secretary read as follows. Resolved that the bill be referred to the committee on the judiciary and that the said committee be instructed in said bill or in any other bill which may be reported by them having reference to the question of reconstruction, so-called, in any of the states not represented in the present Congress to insert the following proviso. Provided, nevertheless, that upon an election for the ratification of any constitution or of officers under the same, previous to its adoption in any state, no person not having the qualifications of an elector under the constitution and laws of such state previous to the late rebellion shall be allowed to vote, unless he shall possess one of the following qualifications, namely, 1. He shall have served as a soldier in the Federal Army for one year or more. 2. He shall have sufficient education to read the Constitution of the United States and to subscribe his name to an oath to support the same. Or 3. He shall be seized in his own right or in the right of his wife of a freehold of the value of $250. Mr. Doolittle. Mr. President, the question presented in the instructions proposed by me is whether Congress is still resolved to subject the white people of the southern states to the domination of the Negro race at the point of the bayonet, or whether Congress, in deference to the recently expressed will of the American people, will now so far modify their policy as to leave the governments in those states in the hands of the white race and of the more civilized portion of the blacks. That is the naked question. Strip it of all useless verbiage and specious arguments about sustaining loyal men and punishing rebels. It is nothing more or less than this. Shall the general of the army put the Negro in power over the white race in all the states of the South and keep him there? That purpose is boldly avowed by some, and that will be the effect of this radical reconstruction as it now stands, or as it will stand, if this bill shall become a law. On the other hand, the amendment which I offer if adopted, would leave the governments in those states where they belong and where they ought always to remain, in the hands of our own race, while at the same time it would allow the right of suffrage to all those Negroes who have any claim to it by reason of intelligence or patriotic services or a state subject to taxation, namely, 1. To those who have served in the Federal Army. 2. To those who have sufficient education to read the Constitution of the United States and to subscribe their names to an oath to support the same. And 3. To those who have acquired and hold real property to the value of $250. But the question may be asked, why not apply the same tests to the white men of the South? The answer is plain and twofold. First, by the constitutions and laws of those states, the right of suffrage is already secured to them, and we have no rightful power to take it away. To do so would trample under our feet one of the most sacred rights reserved to the states. It is by extending suffrage to the Negroes that Congress is overturning the constitutions of those states. In my opinion, this is a usurpation which its advocates justify upon the ground of necessity alone. I neither admit the power nor the necessity, but, granting both, no reason can be given, and no necessity but that of party ascendancy can be urged for going any further in this revolutionary work than to admit to suffrage the classes of Negroes named in this amendment. The second answer is that the white men 
have been accustomed for centuries to vote. They have borne all the responsibilities and discharged all the duties of free men among free men, and it is a very different thing to take away from a free man a privilege long exercised by him and his ancestors from what it is to confer one never before enjoyed upon ignorant, half-civilized Africans just released from slavery. Three generations back, many of them were cannibals and savages of the lowest type of humankind. The only civilization they have is that which they have received during their slavery in America. To confer this great privilege upon the more enlightened Negroes might tend to elevate the mass in the end, but to confer it now upon their ignorant hordes can only degrade the ballot and the Republican institutions which rest upon it. No answer to this view has ever been given, no answer can be given, by the friends of universal Negro suffrage, except this. The ignorant foreigner is allowed to vote, why not let the ignorant Negro vote? Thus to compare the civilized European, accustomed to free labor, to self-support, and self-government, to all the duties and responsibilities of a free man, and who withal, before he is allowed to vote in most of the states, must appear in open court, and after five years' residence, prove by the testimony of two citizens a good moral character, and that he is well disposed toward the government and institutions of the United States, to compare him with the poor degraded mass of Africans, plantation slaves just set free, is an atrocious libel upon ourselves, upon our ancestors, upon the results of Christian civilization, and upon the Caucasian race, which for thousands of years has ruled the world. But suppose it to be true that too many ignorant foreigners of our own race are admitted to suffrage already. Is that any reason or any apology even for admitting 600,000 half-civilized men of another race, men whose natural home is in the tropics, who are exotics here, transplanted not by the natural laws of emigration, not by their own free will, but by the cupidity of old and new England as slaves, and whose whole education and civilization, so far as they have any, have been derived from slavery to the white man? I do not say there are not some ignorant white men, foreign and native-born, who are not qualified to vote, but they are exceptions to the general rule. I do not say there are not some persons of Indian or Chinese or of African descent who are qualified, but they are exceptions to the general rule also. Society must, in the main, be governed by general laws. While the general rule is that white men are capable, and therefore suffrage may be made universal among them, on the other hand, the general rule is that Indians, Chinese, Coolies, and Negroes are incompetent. And especially is this true of the Negroes in the plantation states. Therefore, the general rule should exclude them from suffrage. At all events, it should be no further relaxed than to admit the accepted classes mentioned in this amendment. The effect of the adoption of this amendment would be to allow all who have the qualifications required by the constitutions of those states before the rebellion, not specially disfranchised, to vote. That is to say, the mass of white men, and at the same time it would allow the most liberal Negro suffrage at all compatible with the maintenance of civilized governments in those states. Let Congress now pause and modify its course in accordance with the provisions of this amendment, 
and I have every reason to believe that people of those states would at once take part in the work of reconstruction. A solution of our difficulties would be attained, and peace restored to the country. But if Congress will insist upon its suicidal measures, if Congress is still determined to establish those governments upon Negro supremacy, then chaos comes again. A war of races is inevitable at the South. Mr. Alexander H. Stevens, one of the ablest living men of the South, and who speaks from long and actual observation, can see nothing in the policy of Reconstruction but the operation of a fearful scheme whose ultimate result will be the destruction of either the black or the white race. Every day it becomes more painfully evident that the estrangement between the races is widening on the part of the Negroes from the effects of such instruction as teaches them to distrust and oppose the whites, and on the part of the latter from an abhorrence of the Negro leaders and an instinctive aversion to be ruled and legislated for by ignorance and semi-barbarism. From what fell under his own observation in Georgia, he was unable to detect anything like a spirit on either side tending to mutual sympathy of sentiment and interest. Radical emissaries from the North have sown the seeds of evil dissension with a terrible earnestness, and the diametric opposition of the races now visible all over the South must, in the very nature of things, lead at some time or other to fearful collisions. This inevitable result, as a dispassionate observer, forces itself irresistibly on his attention. A war of races, desired by some and indifferently heeded by others, is, to his mind, a consequence as sure to happen under the radical method of Reconstruction as it is impossible to avoid if the precedents of history or the impulses that control human nature be taken into account. And that's the end of Doolittle's quote from Alexander Stevens. And such is the united testimony of the intelligent men of the South. But, sir, why press this Negro supremacy over the whites? What reason can you give? I have heard three distinct answers to this question worthy of notice. First, because the states of the South rejected the constitutional amendment submitted by Congress. Second, because the Negroes are loyal and the whites disloyal. And third, because it will secure party ascendancy. Let us consider the first answer, that the states of the South have rejected the constitutional amendment submitted by the last Congress as the basis of Reconstruction. I admit the legislatures of all the southern states rejected that amendment with great unanimity, but is that any sufficient reason for the adoption of this harsh policy? I think not. In the first place, that amendment contains one provision which made its adoption impossible by the Southern people, at least until you change the human heart and destroy the sense of personal honor. It disenfranchises from holding office all the men of the South in whom they had ever placed any public confidence, all who had ever held any office, state or federal, and disenfranchises them for what? For simply doing what they themselves had done. I can understand how one may say in argument that the leaders should be disfranchised, 
but how any man of common sense or common manhood could ever suppose it possible for the people of the South to vote to disfranchise men esteemed by them as equal to, if not better than themselves, for an offense of which they themselves were equally guilty is beyond my comprehension. You ask the Southern people to betray them in whom they trust. You ask them to dishonor those whom they honor, to uproot the affection of years from their hearts. You ask them to strike with a serpent's tooth the bosom of a friend, until human nature shall cease to be what God has made it. Honorable men could not do it. Honorable men, to save themselves, to save even their lives, would not incur the guilt of such unnatural treachery by voting for such a provision. When it was pending before the Senate, June 8th, 1866, I urged and implored senators to allow the several provisions of that amendment to be separately submitted and voted upon, and I warned the friends of the measure that this provision would inevitably defeat its adoption by every southern state. But, sir, the majority were deaf to all appeals. The caucus had resolved. The deed was to be done, and it was done. On account, mainly, of that provision, the amendment was rejected almost unanimously by every southern state. Again, when examined more closely, we find that provision required them to vote to disfranchise thousands who had received pardon and amnesty, and a restoration to all their rights as citizens under the proclamations of President Lincoln and President Johnson, by virtue of a law of Congress, which you yourselves enacted, which expressly authorized them to grant such pardon and amnesty upon just such terms as they thought proper, an amendment offered by me in the Senate the 31st of May, 1866, to accept those men who had duly received pardon and amnesty under the Constitution and laws, was voted down by an unyielding majority. I can never view this provision in any other light than a most palpable violation of the plighted faith of this government given to those persons in the most solemn form. If the Emperor of Russia, by proclamation, were to grant a full pardon to such Poles as would take an oath of allegiance to his crown, and if he should afterwards deliberately break his word, what denunciations would be, and ought to be, heaped upon his head by the civilized world? The perfidy of such an action would only be equaled by its folly as a measure of pacification to Poland. Congress authorized the President to give pardon and amnesty to thousands whom Congress now calls upon the people of the South to vote to disenfranchise. Again, sir, there is another feature of that provision which no sentiment of justice should tolerate or excuse. In that sweeping disfranchisement, no distinction whatever is made between those who voluntarily engaged and those who were compelled to engage in the rebellion. No distinction whatever between the innocent and the guilty. The Senate will remember that when this amendment was pending, I offered an amendment to restrict that disfranchisement to those who had voluntarily engaged in the rebellion, and it was voted down by the same unyielding majority. Partisan zeal and party necessity may account for many things. 
But when the history of these times shall be written, it will seem incredible to our posterity that learned men and able senators could ever for one moment bring themselves to believe it possible that the people of the South would vote for such an amendment. It contains still another objectionable feature in violation of an important principle in every good government, confounding executive with legislative duties. If there be any prerogative which more than another pertains to the executive in all governments, ancient and modern, that prerogative is the power of pardon. This amendment proposes to change the Constitution so as to take that power away from the executive and confer it upon the two houses of Congress. It is revolutionary, and worse than that. It vetoes the power of clemency in advance. It not only takes that power from the President, but it takes it away from a majority of Congress. It requires two-thirds of both houses in order to exercise the power of pardon, the same majority which is necessary to pass a law over the presidential veto. In what civilized government upon earth was there ever such a restriction upon the power of pardon? Can it be found even among the savage tribes? Sir, this amendment makes it impossible for a majority of the people of the United States, by the choice of a president or by the election of the Houses of Congress, to grant pardon and amnesty. I speak with all becoming respect for the opinions of others and for the sincerity of their motives. I know it never could have been intended, but judging this provision by its own words, standing in its own light, it seems to be born of distrust in the intelligence and magnanimity of the people, the offspring of cowardice and revenge, of unforgiving hate and lust for political power. And it is because the legislatures of the South rejected such a proposition that Congress should now enforce this policy and establish a combined Negro and military despotism in all the states of the South, and under its iron heel trample in the dust our own race and kindred and people? Mr. President, Congress has proposed from time to time many schemes, but they may all be resolved into two distinct policies, radically opposed to each other. First, reconstruction by the constitutional amendment on the white basis. Second, reconstruction by Negro suffrage and military force. The first assumed that peace had come, that the states were in the Union, with governments organized, with legislatures having power to ratify or reject constitutional amendments, and, furthermore, that these governments were in the hands of white men, with power, as in all the other states, to admit or to exclude Negroes from suffrage, and in case the amendment were adopted by three-fourths of the states, the only effect of admitting or excluding Negroes from the ballot in any state would be to change its number of votes in the other House of Congress and in the Electoral College. The second assumes that we are still at war, that the southern states are not states in the Union at all, but conquered provinces, with no legislatures which can either ratify or reject a constitutional amendment, that the white people of these states shall no longer have any power over the question of suffrage, that Congress, by the bayonet, will disfranchise the whites and enfranchise the blacks, and thus by military power and Negro votes compel the adoption of a new union and a new constitution. Because they rejected the constitutional amendment, Congress now resorts to the bayonet and Negro suffrage to compel its adoption. True, 
I admit they did reject the amendment, but how did they reject it? By the votes of their legislatures. They could reject it in no other way, for it was only to their legislatures that Congress submitted the question. But how could their legislatures reject it if they had no legislatures at all? If they had legislatures which could reject it, they had legislatures which could ratify it. To do either is the highest act of a state legislature, for it then acts upon the fundamental law not only of its own state and people, but of all the states and all the people of the United States. Conceding they had power, as you claim, to reject your amendment, by what shadow of right do you deny to those legislatures power to choose senators in this body? As well deny to a living body the right to breathe. But perhaps you say, if they had ratified the amendment, then they had legislatures which had the right to vote. But as they voted to reject it, they had no legislatures and no right to vote. In other words, if they voted with you, they had a right to vote. If they voted against you, they had no right to vote at all. Again, sir, all the world knows the whole object of the war was to put down the rebellion and to maintain the union of states under the Constitution. Every act and resolve of Congress, every dollar spent, every blow struck, every drop of blood shed, was to compel the people and the states of the South to live in the Union and obey the Constitution. And now that we have succeeded, now that the people and the states of the South have surrendered to the Constitution and laws, you say they shall not live in the Union under this Constitution at all. They shall first form another Union and come into that Union under another or amended Constitution. Mr. President, having thus shown that this first answer to that question is unreasonable, inconsistent, and absurd, I repeat the question a second time. Why press this Negro domination over the whites of the South? What reason can you give? A second answer is because the Negroes were loyal and the whites disloyal. Let us examine this bold assertion. Is it true? Were the Negroes loyal during the rebellion? Recall the facts. Who does not remember that at least three-fourths of all the Negroes in those states during the whole war did all in their power to sustain the rebel cause? They fed their armies, they dug their trenches, they built their fortifications, they fed their women and children. There were no insurrections, no uprisings, no effort of any kind anywhere outside the lines of our armies on the part of the Negroes to aid the Union cause. In whole districts, in whole states even, where all the able-bodied white men were conscripted into the rebel army, the great mass of Negroes, of whose loyalty you boast, under the control of women, decrepit old men and boys, did all they were capable of doing to aid the rebellion. Again, sir, the assumption is equally groundless that the whole of the white population, or a majority even, ever voluntarily engaged in the rebellion. It is true, the great majority, in the end, were compelled to acquiesce, but it was not until after the federal government, speaking through President Buchanan, had abandoned the loyal people of the South and declared that neither the President nor Congress had the power to make war to compel the states to remain in the Union. In a word, it was not until after President Buchanan 
in his message of December 1860, declared that this government had neither the right nor the power to defend itself from overthrow at the hands of the radicals of the South, that a majority of the Southern people were disposed to consent to secession, nor did they even then acquiesce in rebellion until hostilities, actually begun, had organized an irresistible military power over them. Then the majority were compelled to succumb. It should not be forgotten that allegiance on the part of the citizen and protection on the part of the government are correlative duties. Has a government the right to demand the one if it do not afford the other? Has it the right to punish the citizen for yielding to a superior force against which it makes no attempt to protect him? Such a claim would be monstrously unjust. We know very well that the radicals of the South had a powerful organization. They were as bold, as earnest, as reckless of consequences and as restive under constitutional restraints as the boldest of the present radicals of the North. Mr. Nye, with the permission of the Honorable Senator from Wisconsin, I should like to know what he means by the radicals of the South. Mr. Doolittle, I mean the secessionists. Mr. Nye, ah. Mr. Doolittle, I will not leave you to misunderstand, sir, to whom I refer. Mr. Sumner, I should like to ask the Senator what is his authority for the expression. Mr. Doolittle. As I perceive that my honorable friend from Massachusetts proposes to enter upon this discussion, I trust he will allow me to finish what I have to say, and then he will have ample opportunity to be heard. I shall refer to several things before I get through that will perhaps attract his attention. I was speaking of the radicals of the South and the extremist radicals of the North, and I say they are similar in all the main elements of character, cherishing even to fanaticism opposite extremes of opinion, equally removed from the truth. Had they exchanged places and educations, in all human probability the radical of the North would have been a most violent radical at the South, and the radical of the South an equally violent radical at the North. Mr. President, it is a striking fact, showing how easily extremes sometimes meet, that the radical cry of the secessionists of 1860 is identical with that of the northern radical of today, namely, the Union is broken, the Constitution in all the states of the South is gone, down with the old Union, down with the old Constitution, we are outside the Union and outside the Constitution. We will have a new union and a new constitution to suit ourselves, or we will have none at all. The cry was the same, the purpose the same. Political power. The radicals of the South raised that cry to build up their power upon Negro slavery. The radicals of the North to build up their power upon Negro supremacy, upheld by the bayonet. And, sir, shall we make no allowance for the great mass of the Southern people who, by force, by terror, by persuasion, by the abandonment of the government, and by all the excitements, passions, and necessities of actual war, were plunged into that terrible conflict by the radicals of the South, as by a power they could not control? We all know the influence over any party or community of a small, well-organized minority, strong in will and reckless of consequences. What have we seen in the Republican Party itself within the last three years? 
We have seen a comparatively small number of earnest radicals reverse and absolutely overturn from its foundations the policy of Reconstruction adopted by Mr. Lincoln before his re-election and sustained by the convention which renominated him and the party which re-elected him in 1864. His policy was Reconstruction upon the white basis. The Negro was excluded altogether. Even the Wade and Davis Reconstruction Bill, which passed Congress by Republican votes and which Mr. Lincoln refused to sanction, but not for that reason, confined Reconstruction to the white basis alone. It excluded all Negro suffrage. It left that question, where it belongs, to the white race to determine in each state for itself. Upon this subject, I quote and adopt the language of the Senator from Indiana, Mr. Morton, while governor of that state. I call your attention to the fact that Congress itself, when it assumed to take the whole question of Reconstruction out of the hands of the President, expressly excluded the Negro from the right of suffrage in voting for the men who were to frame the new constitutions for the rebel states. If Mr. Lincoln had not refused to sign that bill, there would today be an act of Congress on the statute books absolutely prohibiting Negroes from any participation in the work of reorganization and pledging the government in advance to accept of the constitutions that might be formed under the bill, although they made no provision for the Negro beyond the fact of his personal liberty. That's the end of his quote of Morton. I repeat, we have seen a little handful of radicals, by their boldness, persistency and force, persuade, cajole, or drive the great majority of the Republican Party away from their own avowed policy of Reconstruction upon the white basis, and compel them to adopt the policy of universal Negro suffrage, to establish Negro governments, and now, at last, to propose in the bill on your table an absolute military dictatorship in all the states of the South. I shall say nothing unkind of the senator from Indiana. I admit his patriotism and eminent abilities and his almost incomparable services during the late war to put down the rebellion. But if anything were wanting to demonstrate the power which these radicals have had over the mass of the Republican Party in changing their opinions and reversing their policy, we have only to point to the able senator from Indiana himself, once among the most powerful advocates of the Lincoln-Johnson policy of restoration upon the white basis now bound hand and foot and dragged in chains at the victorious chariot wheels to grace the triumph of Wendell Phillips and the senator from Massachusetts, Mr. Sumner. Even his great mind now lends its powerful influence to favor the establishment of governments based upon universal Negro suffrage, to hold, it may be, the balance of power in this republic under the control of the bayonets of the regular army. I well remember the effect produced by the speech of the governor of Indiana in 1865. It came at a time to be most gratefully remembered by me, for I was engaged in a struggle at that time against the radicals in my own state to prevent them from changing the creed and reversing the policy upon which the Union Party fought and mastered the rebellion and by which alone their victory was achieved. I endeavored to demonstrate the same truths set forth in that great speech, and when it came, with its irresistible eloquence and unanswerable force of argument, I rejoiced to lean upon his strong arm for support. 
Like him, I had, on more than one occasion, attempted to prove that Mr. Johnson inherited and was faithfully carrying out the policy of his predecessor. We did not then have the positive testimony of General Grant and of Mr. Stanton to prove that Mr. Johnson's North Carolina proclamation was drawn by Mr. Stanton and read over in Mr. Lincoln's cabinet. Had those facts then appeared, it might have saved that honorable senator and myself the labor of proving the identity of the policy of Mr. Johnson with that of Mr. Lincoln, which the governor of Indiana demonstrated in a manner so complete that no man has ever been able to answer him. I do not doubt his patriotism nor his sincerity, but of all surrenders to the radical Negro suffrage policy of Reconstruction, none filled me with so much surprise, none gave me so much pain, as that of the honorable senator from Indiana, except one. I refer to General Grant. Again, sir, if it were true that the whites were disloyal during the rebellion, they are not rebellious now. Rebellions cannot exist or continue without real or supposed cause. Slavery, the cause and the pretext for the late rebellion, is gone forever. It can never be revived. Nothing can incite another rebellion at the South. For they have no power to organize one against the government, and will not have for many years to come. Upon this point, allow me to read an extract from a letter of Honorable Benjamin Fitzpatrick, formerly the presiding officer of this body, and known by all the older senators as being opposed to secession, a gentleman of the highest honor and undoubted integrity. Hear what he says. Quote, it is said by some that it was made to keep down rebellion. What have the people of the South to commence or carry on a rebellion with? Our slaves are all set free, our fields barely cultivated under the new system of labor, and many of them grown up in briars and weeds since emancipation, and almost everything in a state of dilapidation and decay. The cry for bread which comes up from almost every hill and valley in the state has scarcely ceased ringing in our ears, and it was only hushed by the liberal donations from the benevolent of the North and West. No people of the old world in any of their long and desolating wars ever longed for peace more than we do. We want peace, but not degradation. We wish to be left free to act for ourselves, and free from the intermeddling of those who do not live among us, but come here to foment discord and speculate upon our troubles. End quote. Sir, this is the language of one who knows the white people of the South and speaks for them. And why, sir, why should they not desire peace? For that rebellion into which, in an evil hour, the radicals of the South plunged them, they have been punished already by the sacrifice of all their slave property, valued at three to four thousand million dollars, by the sacrifice of more than three-fourths of all other personal property, probably two thousand millions more, by the sacrifice of their public and private credits, at least a thousand millions more, by the depreciation of the value of all their real estate, at least seventy-five percent, amounting probably to more than two thousand million dollars more, making in all a sacrifice of property, credits, and values in the southern states alone of at least nine thousand million dollars. But there is another bloody and terrible page in this account, 
a page in account with death. It is estimated there have perished in battle by disease, exposure, or other cause incident to the war at least 300,000 able-bodied men of the South. I take no account of the unutterable anguish of millions of crushed and bleeding hearts. No language can express, no figures measure that. For that rebellion the white men of the South have been most terribly punished. Nine thousand millions of values are gone, lost forever. Three hundred thousand able-bodied white men of the flower and strength of the South now lie in their bloody or premature graves. Great God! Is not this punishment enough? Must we go further? Must we now punish the white men of the South by placing them under the domination of half-civilized Africans? And in order to do that, shall we punish ourselves by giving over to stolid and brutish ignorance the political control of one-fourth of the states and it may be, under the control of the army, the balance of power in the United States, shall we Africanize the South and Mexicanize the whole republic? I know these measures of Congress have done much to wound, nothing to heal, yet notwithstanding all that Congress has done to embitter their hatred toward the radical policy, there is neither thought nor wish nor hope to restore slavery, nor to separate from the Union nor of rebellion against the authority of the government, all evidence proves the contrary. In the whole rebel army which surrendered, I challenge any senator to point me to a single instance in which a rebel officer has violated his parole, or to a single man of any position or prominence at the South who, after taking the oath of allegiance, has violated his plighted faith. No man can more deeply feel than I do the great and monstrous folly and crime of that rebellion, which brought so much of agony and of blood upon all parts of our beloved land, which robbed us of our sons and dearest kindred, and threw a shade of sorrow over our hearts, which will never pass away until they cease to beat. But now that blood has ceased to flow, now that three years of peace have elapsed, now that the whole South has surrendered and every interest they have or can hope for is to be found in the Union and under the Constitution, now that they have in good faith pledged anew their allegiance and desire to join with us in rebuilding the waste places overrun by this desolating war, now that they have, in fact, ceased to be rebels, why shall we continue to denounce them as rebels and do all in our power to compel them to be rebels and to remain rebels and enemies forever? Is that the way to restore prosperity? Is that the course of wise statesmanship? Will that bring permanent peace? Sir, let me put the extremist case. Suppose that these states of the South, before the war, had been foreign states, and that we had conquered them by arms. Would not wise statesmen adopt the policy of conciliation? Would not they treat them as friends and make them fellow citizens at the earliest possible moment? How much more earnestly should we adopt that policy, because from the beginning we have always declared that our purpose was not to subjugate, but to maintain the Union? with the equality and rights of the states unimpaired. We had a war with Mexico, resulting in the acquisition of people and territory. By treaty, the people were made citizens at once with all the rights of citizens. 
We have had wars with Englishmen, but when the bloody strife was over, when peace had come, what course did our great ancestors pursue? We all know the war of the revolution was a civil war. During the strife, confiscation and disfranchisement were the order of the day. But when peace came, and they sought to lay the foundations of the republic broad and deep, what did they do? Do you find in the constitution they formed, or the laws they passed under it, any test oaths, any bills of attainder, any ex post facto laws, any military reconstruction bills? No, sir, no. They were too great and too wise. They had too much faith in man, and liberty and truth, and God for that. On the contrary, they declared that no bills of attainder, no ex post facto law should be passed. No man, not in the military or naval service, should be subject to military trials under the arbitrary power of the bayonet, and that even for treasure itself there should be no corruption of blood or forfeiture beyond the life of the guilty party, and, furthermore, that no man should be convicted except upon presentiment by a grand jury, and after a fair trial, confronting his accusers by the verdict of a jury of his peers. In the Declaration of Independence, also, even in the midst of war, reason remained supreme over passion. They were equal to the grand occasion. In one of its sublimest sentences, they declared they would hold the people of England their fellow countrymen, with whom they were engaged in civil war, as they did the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace friends. If we cannot equal them, may we not endeavor to follow their example? What do the great examples of history teach us in dealing with rebellions, if not that, after force has been subdued by force, magnanimity is more powerful than revenge, that love conquers what hate never can? The hearts and affections of a people? When Latium, one of the Roman provinces, revolted, and the revolt was put down by arms, the question arose in the Roman Senate, what shall be done with Latium and the people of Latium? There were some, then, who cried, disfranchise them. Others said, confiscate their property. There were none who said, subject them in vassalage to their slaves. But old Camillus, in that speech which revealed his greatness and made his name immortal, said, Senators, make them your fellow citizens, and thus add to the power and glory of Rome. In this high place, in this senate, of the great republic of the world, outgrowth of the civilization of all the ages, cannot we, senators, rise to the height of that great argument? To descend to humbler examples, may we not even take lessons from some of our Indian tribes? It is well known that the civilized tribes of the Indian territory took sides in our terrible conflict. Civil war, in its direst and most savage form, raged through all their country. Their dwellings were sacked and burned. Their hands were red in each other's blood. Yet they have made peace. They have reorganized their governments. They now live side by side in perfect tranquility. Prosperity is once more smiling upon their beautiful land. Cannot Christian statesmen 
have equal faith in magnanimity, equal courage to forgive and to believe that love is the power by which to reach the hearts of our late enemies? But, sir, suppose the statement be true, that the Negroes are loyal and the whites disloyal in heart. Have we even then the right to degrade the whites in vassalage to the Negroes? I answer no. For their criminal acts, we would have the legal right to try and convict and sentence to imprisonment, and to death even. But now, without trial, by what operates as a substantial bill of attainder and ex post facto at that, to subject them to Negro governments is a crime against the Constitution, against our own race, and against civilization itself. It is to impose upon them against their will a degradation which every state of the North would reject, and one tenfold greater than has ever been attempted in any northern state. It would make them unfit to be our fellow citizens and place the states of the South upon a footing inferior to that of the other states in the Union. Sir, we claim to have fought for liberty and against slavery. The issue of 1860 was the extension of slavery into the territories. By the election of Mr. Lincoln, the people of the United States decided against that. The radicals of the South, another name for the secessionists, rebelled against that decision and endeavored to reverse it by arms. That rebellion raised another and greater issue, the existence of the government itself. It also placed at stake slavery in all the states. By the re-election of Mr. Lincoln in 1864, the people decided in favor of a vigorous prosecution of the war until every rebel should lay down his arms, and also in favor of an amendment to the Constitution to abolish slavery in all states and territories forever. At present, what do we behold, now that the war is over, now that every rebel has laid down his arms, now that the people of the South have unanimously agreed to abolish slavery forever, to obey the Constitution, and discharge every duty as citizens of the United States, the radicals of the North have morally begun a new rebellion against the Union and the Constitution. For, raising anew the old cry of the radicals of the South, they now declare that the states of the South are outside the Constitution, and that Congress acting outside the Constitution, has unlimited power over them as over conquered territories. In their blind zeal for the advancement of the Negro, they propose to overthrow the Constitution in order to practically subject the white race to the domination of the Negro. As men who claim to be the friends of liberty, we have no right to do that. As Christians who claim to have learned something of forgiveness from the teachings of our Savior, we have no right to do that. As members of that great Caucasian race which has given the world its civilization, we have no right to do that. As statesmen who desire to restore the blessings of peace, we have no right to do that which would inevitably make eight millions of our own race and kindred in our own land eternal enemies of the government. As statesmen who, with ordinary sagacity, should look to the future and to possible wars with foreign powers, we ought to make haste to restore sentiments of affection and patriotism in all that vast region, larger and richer by far in natural resources than England, France, and Prussia, all combined. And I ask, Mr. President, 
with all the earnestness of which the soul is capable, can any human being conceive of a measure so well calculated to make the whole white people of the South, men, women, and children, hate and loathe our government, to hate it with a perfect hatred, to gather around the family, altar upon their bended knees to curse it, and in the agony of prayer to call upon God to curse it, as this radical reconstruction which seeks to disfranchise the heart and brain of the South and to subject at the point of the bayonet the white race to the dominion of their late half-civilized African slaves. Instead of peace, it gives them a sword. Instead of hope, it fills them with despair. Instead of civil liberty, it gives them military despotism. White disfranchisement and Negro domination was the idea which inspired and provoked the riot at New Orleans. It has arrayed everywhere the blacks and whites in hostility to each other, often resulting in bloodshed all over the South. It tends directly to bring on that war of races, which in the West Indies enacted scenes of horror to sicken and appall the world. That war is now impending over all the South. It is only the presence of the Federal Army which prevents its outbreak upon a gigantic scale. A war which, once begun, will end, I fear, in the exile or extermination of the blacks from the Potomac to the Rio Grande. I know the senator from Ohio, Mr. Wade, in a speech in the late canvas, had no fears of such a war or of its results. He is reported to have said, Let that war come. Let them fight it out. God grant that war may never come. But if it does come, no amount of military discipline can compel the white men of the North to take part in the massacre of their own race and kindred. Mr. President, having considered at some length the second answer to my question, and finding that it is not sustained by the facts, that it is bad in principle and worse in policy, I repeat the question a third time. Why press this Negro supremacy over the whites of the South? What reason can you give? The leader of the radical forces, that inexorable Moloch of this new rebellion against the Constitution, quote, the strongest and the fiercest spirit that fought in heaven, now fiercer by despair, unquote. Answers with boldness, and in plain English gives the true reason, namely, to secure party ascendancy. This is the third and last answer which I propose to consider on this occasion. On the 3rd of January, 1867, Mr. Stevens, in the House of Representatives used this language, which I find reported in the Globe. Quote, Another good reason is it would ensure the ascendancy of the Union Party. Do you avow the party purpose? exclaims some horror-stricken demagogue. I do. End quote. The party purpose is here avowed in the House. In his speeches and letters elsewhere, Mr. Stevens again and again, in stronger language, avows the real purpose of this legislation. To them I mainly refer. The Negroes, under the tutelage of the Freedmen's Bureau, led by radical emissaries, or pushed by federal bayonets, must take the political control of these states in order to obtain their votes in the Electoral College or in the House of Representatives in the election of the next president. Here is a reason, and just such a reason, as the bold radical would give. 
It is in keeping with his revolutionary measures and in keeping with his own revolutionary history. The letter of General Pope, when in command of one of the districts, recently published, draws aside the veil and discloses the fact that the same party purpose seeks to control the bayonet also. This argument for party ascendancy all can understand. It is bold, clear, and logical. It is the argument of necessity addressing itself to unscrupulous ambition. One syllogism contains the whole of it. We must, says the radical, elect the next president. The Negroes, under the lead of our bureau or the control of our bayonets, will vote for our candidate. The whites, outraged by our attempt to put the Negro over them, will vote against him. Therefore, the bayonet must place the Negro in power in these states to give us 70 electoral votes for president, 20 senators, and 50 members of the House. All honor to the radical chief, the great commoner, who, with all his faults, is too great a man to resort to subterfuge or shams or attempt to conceal this real purpose in this legislation. Some who favor these measures do not admit his leadership, but the truth is, in some way or other, he does lead or drive the radical party in the end into the support of all his revolutionary schemes. Now and then, one shrinks back. More than once I have seen the galled jade wince, but never fail at the last to obey the lash of her master. Would to heaven it were otherwise, would to heaven that the radical party could pause and modify its suicidal policy, but I fear the majority have become bound to it, bound hand and foot, with chains they cannot break, that, however much some may regret it or strive to conceal regret, political necessities compel you to go on and write on to the bitter end. You have staked your all upon it. You must live or die by it. The senator from Massachusetts, Mr. Wilson, as if by authority, says, We will take no step backward. Mr. Colfax, in his recent letter, re-echoes, Not a hair's breadth. Such, I fear, is the fatal resolution taken by the majority. The result of the recent elections, showing that a majority in the northern and western states is opposed to that policy, so far from changing a resolution from which the radical party dare not retreat, is pushing it on to the madness of despair. It sees that its majority in the North and West is already lost. It dare not exclude the South in the next election. The South must be forced at the point of the bayonet by white disfranchisement and Negro suffrage to vote for the radical candidate, or he will be beaten. The majority in the Northern and Western states against him must therefore be overcome by the Negro votes of the South. Sir, we shall see if the people of the United States will allow the regular army, which now controls this ignorant Negro vote in the South, to hold the balance of power in the Republic and to elect to the presidency the candidate of Negro supremacy upheld by military despotism. Shall Praetorian bands control the presidency, as in the degenerate days of Rome they set up the empire for sale? I am no prophet. If not mistaken in the signs of the times, the American people are not yet prepared for that. The Democratic Party, everywhere freeing itself from the errors of the past, planting itself upon the living issues of the hour, welcoming into its ranks all who are opposed to this radical and barbarian policy of subjecting the states of the South to Negro supremacy by military dictatorship, 
All who are in favor of maintaining the integrity of the Union, the rights of the states, and the liberties of the people under the Constitution, and all who neither admit the doctrine of Southern radicalism which brought on this rebellion, that a state may secede from the Union, nor admit that other doctrine of the Northern radical, no less revolutionary, that Congress may exclude or disfranchise ten states from the Union, are now coming together upon the platform of the fathers of the Constitution, and in the same fraternal spirit in which it was formed, and by which alone it can be maintained. Sir, there are times when public opinion is like a placid stream gently flowing within its banks, when slight obstacles may for a time arrest or change or divert its course. Then, it may be said, the voice of the people is the voice of politicians. The voice of the people is the will of a party. But there are other times when the heavens are overcast, the rains have descended, and the floods have come, that its majestic current rolls on, emblem of wrath and power, when resistance maddens its fury and increases its strength, then it overflows its banks. The barriers of party, caucuses, and politicians are all swept away and become mere floodwood on the surface of the troubled waters. The voice of the people then is no longer the voice of politicians. Then it is that the voice of the people is the voice of God. Sir, we have passed through such crises in our day. You well remember when a feeble minority in this body raised its voice against that overbearing majority which, under the dictation of Southern radicals, sought to force a state government with Negro slavery upon the people of Kansas against their will. That monstrous wrong stirred the hearts of the people to their very depths, and party lines and party names were forgotten. Party ties were sundered like flax at the touch of fire. You remember that, sir. Again, when these same radicals of the South, because the people of the North indignantly refused to sanction the subjugation of Kansas, rose in arms to destroy the Union and the Constitution, what become of party then? The people rose as one man. Large masses of the Democratic Party gave their political support to the administration of Mr. Lincoln, forming the Union Republican Party. And to their eternal honor be it said that the great mass of the Democratic Party, with some exceptions, gave to his war measures a hearty and unflinching support. Without that support, the war would have been a failure. In the actual prosecution of the war, in the camp and on the field of battle, in the rank and file, as well as in command, we found no distinction whatever. Shoulder to shoulder, Democrats and Republicans stood together like brothers on every battlefield from the beginning to the end of the rebellion to defend the Union and the Constitution against overthrow by Southern radicalism. In arms against them, they braved every danger and endured every hardship. Together they stood in the day of the conflict, freely bared their bosoms in each other's defense. Together, often their life's blood gushed and mingled, and side by side they now sleep their last sleep in their honored graves. There they will sleep together till heaven calls them to their reward. And now, sir, what do we behold? A dominant majority in the Senate and in Congress, under the lead of Northern radicalism, at the point of the bayonet forcing Negro suffrage and Negro governments upon ten states of the Union and six million people against their will. 
what was the outrage upon Kansas compared to that? We see them practically dissolving the Union by excluding ten states from the Union, thus doing what the rebellion could never do, and what we spent five billion dollars and five hundred thousand lives of our best and bravest to prevent. For long months we have seen them encroaching steadily and persistently upon the just rights of the executive, and now, to rivet their chains upon us and to crown the whole of their usurpations, they propose to subjugate the Supreme Court, to overturn justice in her sacred seat in this tribunal of last resort. They would compel the court, whose office it is, to hold an even balance between the states on the one hand and the federal government on the other, and also between the several departments of the government, to place false weights in the balances. They would make the weight of the opinions of three judges in favor of the usurpations of Congress more than equal the weight of the opinions of five judges in favor of the rights of other departments, the rights of the states, and the liberties of the people. Sir, we are in the midst of a new rebellion, bloodless as yet, but which threatens to destroy the Constitution, and with it the last hope of civil liberty for the world. But let us not despair, let us not surrender our faith in the people nor our faith in republican institutions. The people everywhere are coming to the rescue. They are again rising above party and the clamors and denunciations of partisans. Hundreds and thousands of the earnest Republicans who supported Mr. Lincoln's administration have already severed their relations to this revolutionary party. Hundreds of thousands more are ready to do so and to strike hands with the great mass of the Democratic Party to rescue the Constitution from this new rebellion against it. Yes, sir. They are organizing everywhere, from Maine to California, not upon the dead issues of the past for inglorious defeat. There is too much at stake, and they are too terribly in earnest for that. But with living men, upon the living issues of the present, they will organize for a victory so complete and overwhelming that the votes of the Negro states of the South cannot hold the balance of power and decide the election against them. That same patriotism which led hundreds of thousands of Democrats to sustain the Republican Party in putting down the rebellion of the Southern Radicals will now lead hundreds of thousands of Republicans to act with the Democratic Party to overcome the no less dangerous doctrines of the Radicals of the North. They are fighting in the same cause of the Union and the Constitution and for the spirit which gives them life. Whew. And that is the end of Doolittle's speech. Now, on to the speech that Morton gave in reply the next day. Reconstruction. Speech of Honorable O.P. Morton. In the U.S. Senate, January 24, 1868, on the Constitutionality of the Reconstruction Acts. Mr. President, if I had not been referred to by my honorable friend from Wisconsin, Mr. Doolittle, in the debate yesterday, I should not desire to speak on this question, especially at this time. I fear that I shall not have the strength to say what I wish to. The issue here today is the same which prevails throughout the country, which will be the issue of this canvas, and perhaps for years to come. 
to repeat what I have had occasion to say elsewhere, it is between two paramount ideas, each struggling for the supremacy. One is that the war to suppress the rebellion was right and just on our part, that the rebels forfeited their civil and political rights and can only be restored to them upon such conditions as the nation may prescribe for its future safety and prosperity. The other idea is that the rebellion was not sinful, but was right, that those engaged in it forfeited no rights, civil or political, and have a right to take charge of their state governments and be restored to their representation in Congress just as if there had been no rebellion and nothing had occurred. The immediate issue before the Senate now is between the existing state governments established under the policy of the President of the United States in the rebel states and the plan of reconstruction presented by Congress. When a surveyor first enters a new territory, he endeavors to ascertain the exact latitude and longitude of a given spot, and from that can safely begin his survey. And so, I will endeavor to ascertain a proposition in this debate upon which both parties are agreed, and start from that proposition. That proposition is that at the end of the war in the spring of 1865, the rebel states were without state governments of any kind. The loyal state governments existing at the beginning of the war had been overturned by the rebels. The rebel state governments erected during the war had been overturned by our armies, and at the end of the war, there were no governments of any kind existing in those states. This fact was recognized distinctly by the President of the United States in his proclamation under which the work of Reconstruction was commenced in North Carolina in 1865, to which I beg leave to refer. The others were mere copies of this proclamation. In that proclamation he says, And whereas the rebellion, which has been waged by a portion of the people of the United States against the properly constituted authorities of the government thereof, in the most violent and revolting form, but whose organized and armed forces have now been almost entirely overcome, has in its revolutionary progress deprived the people of the state of North Carolina of all civil government. Here the President must be allowed to speak for his party, and I shall accept this as a proposition agreed upon on both sides, that at the end of the war there were no governments of any kind existing in those states. The fourth section of the fourth article of the Constitution declares that the United States shall guarantee to every state in this Union a Republican form of government. This provision contains a vast undefined power that has never yet been ascertained, a great supervisory power given to the United States to enable them to keep the states in their orbits, to preserve them from anarchy, revolution, and rebellion. The measure of power thus conferred upon the government of the United States can only be determined by that which is requisite to guarantee or maintain in each state a legal and republican form of government. Whatever power, therefore, may be necessary to enable the government of the United States thus to maintain in each state a republican form of government is conveyed by this provision. Now, Mr. President, when the war ended and these states were found without governments of any kind, the jurisdiction of the United States, under this provision of the Constitution, at once attached the power to reorganize state governments, to use the common word, to reconstruct, 
to maintain and guarantee Republican state governments in those states at once attached under this provision. Upon this proposition, there is also a concurrence of the two parties. The President has distinctly recognized the application of this clause of the Constitution. He has recognized the fact that its jurisdiction attached when those states were found without Republican state governments, and he himself claimed to act under this clause of the Constitution. I will read the preamble of the President's proclamation. Whereas the fourth section of the fourth article of the Constitution of the United States declares that the United States shall guarantee to every state in the Union a Republican form of government, and shall protect each of them against invasion and domestic violence, and whereas the President of the United States is, by the Constitution, made Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, as well as Chief Civil Executive Officer of the United States, and is bound by solemn oath faithfully to execute the office of President of the United States, and to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And whereas the rebellion which has been waged by a portion of the people of the United States against the properly constituted authorities of the government thereof in the most violent and revolting form, but whose organized and armed forces have now been almost entirely overcome, has, in its revolutionary progress, deprived the people of the state of North Carolina of all civil government. And whereas it becomes necessary and proper to carry out and enforce the obligations of the people of the United States to the people of North Carolina in securing them in the enjoyment of a Republican form of government. I read this, Mr. President, for the purpose of showing that the President of the United States, in his policy of Reconstruction, started out with a distinct recognition of the applicability of this cause of the Constitution, and that he based his system of Reconstruction upon it. It is true that he recites in this proclamation that he is the Commander-in-Chief of the Army of the United States, but at the same time he puts his plan of Reconstruction not upon the exercise of the military power which is called to its aid, but on the execution of the guarantee provided by the clause of the Constitution to which I have referred. He appoints a governor for North Carolina and for these other states, the office being civil in its character, but military in its effects. This governor has all the power of one of the district commanders, and, in fact, far greater power than was conferred upon General Pope, or General Sheridan, or any general in command of a district, for it is further provided that the military commander of the department, and all officers and persons in the military and naval service, aid and assist the said provisional governor in carrying into effect this proclamation. We are then agreed upon the second proposition, that the power of the United States to reconstruct and guarantee Republican forms of government at once applied when these states were found in the condition in which they were at the end of the war. Then, sir, being agreed upon these two propositions, we are brought to the question as to the proper form of exercising this power and by whom it shall be exercised. The Constitution says that the United States shall guarantee to every state in this Union a Republican form of government. By the phrase United States, here is meant the government of the United States. 
the United States can only act through the government, and the clause would mean precisely the same thing if it read, the government of the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a republican form of government. Then, as the government of the United States is to execute this guarantee, the question arises, what constitutes the government of the United States? The president does not constitute the government. The Congress does not constitute the government. The judiciary does not constitute the government. But all three together constitute the government. And as this guarantee is to be executed by the government of the United States, it follows necessarily that it must be a legislative act. The president could not assume to execute the guarantee without assuming that he was the United States within the meaning of that provision, without assuming that he was the government of the United States. Congress could not of itself assume to execute the guarantee without assuming that it was the government of the United States, nor could the judiciary without a like assumption. The act must be the act of the government, and therefore it must be a legislative act. A law passed by Congress, submitted to the president for his approval, and perhaps, in a proper case, subject to be reviewed by the judiciary. Mr. President, that this is necessarily the case from the simple reading of the Constitution seems to me cannot be for a moment denied. The President, in assuming to execute this guarantee himself, is assuming to be the government of the United States, which he clearly is not, but only one of its coordinate branches, and, therefore, as this guarantee must be a legislative act, it follows that the attempt on the part of the president to execute the guarantee was without authority, and that the guarantee can only be executed in the form of a law, first to be passed by Congress and then to be submitted to the president for his approval, and if he does not approve it, then to be passed over his head by a majority of two-thirds in each house. That law, then, becomes the execution of the guarantee and is the act of the government of the United States. Mr. President, this is not an open question. I send to the Secretary and ask him to read a part of the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States in the case of Luther v. Borden, as reported in Seven Howard. The Secretary read as follows. Moreover, the Constitution of the United States as far as it has provided for an emergency of this kind and authorized the general government to interfere in the domestic concerns of the state, has treated the subject as political in its nature and placed the power in the hands of that department. The fourth section of the fourth article of the Constitution of the United States provides that the United States shall guarantee to every state in the Union a republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasions, and upon the application of the legislature or of the executive, when the legislature cannot be convened, against domestic violence. Under this article of the Constitution, it rests with Congress to decide what government is the established one in a state. For, as the United States guarantees to each state a republican government, Congress must necessarily decide what government is established in the state before it can determine whether it is republican or not. And when the senators and representatives of a state are admitted into the councils of the Union, the authority of the government under which they are appointed, as well as its republican character, is recognized by the proper constitutional authority. 
and its decision is binding upon every other department of the government and could not be questioned in a judicial tribunal. It is true that the contest in this case did not last long enough to bring the matter to this issue. And as no senators or representatives were elected under the authority of the government of which Mr. Dorr was the head, Congress was not called upon to decide the controversy. Mr. Morton. In this opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States, delivered many years ago, the right to execute the guarantee provided for in this clause of the Constitution is placed in Congress and nowhere else, and therefore the necessary reading of the Constitution is confirmed by the highest judicial authority which we have. Mr. Johnson. Do you read from the opinion delivered by the Chief Justice? Mr. Morton. Yes, sir. The opinion delivered by Chief Justice Taney. He decides that this power is not judicial, that it is one of the high powers conferred upon Congress, that it is not subject to be reviewed by the Supreme Court because it is political in its nature. It is a distinct enunciation of the doctrine that this guarantee is not to be executed by the President or by the Supreme Court, but by the Congress of the United States in the form of a law to be passed by that body and to be submitted to the President for his approval. And, should he disapprove it, it may become a law by being passed by a two-thirds majority over his head. Now, I will call the attention of my friend from Wisconsin to some other authority, as he has been pleased to refer to a former speech of mine to show that I am not quite consistent, I will refer to a vote given by him in 1864 on a very important provision. On the 1st of July, 1864, the Senate having under consideration as in Committee of the Whole, a bill to guarantee to certain states whose governments have been usurped or overthrown a Republican form of government. Mr. Brown of Missouri offered an amendment to strike out all of the bill after the enacting clause and to insert a substitute, which I will ask the Secretary to read. The Secretary read as follows. That when the inhabitants of any state have been declared in a state of insurrection against the United States, by proclamation of the President, by force and virtue of the act entitled an act further to provide for the collection of duties on imports and for other purposes, approved July 13, 1861, they shall be and are hereby declared to be incapable of casting any vote for electors of President or Vice President of the United States or of electing Senators or Representatives in Congress until said insurrection in said state is suppressed or abandoned, and said inhabitants have returned to their obedience to the government of the United States, and until such return to obedience shall be declared by proclamation of the President, issued by virtue of an act of Congress hereafter to be passed, authorizing the same. Mr. Morton. The Honorable Senator from Wisconsin voted for that in committee of the whole and on its final passage. I call attention to the conclusion of the amendment, which declares that they shall be incapable of casting any vote for electors of President or Vice President of the United States or of electing Senators or Representatives in Congress until said insurrection in said state is suppressed or abandoned, 
and said inhabitants have returned to their obedience to the government of the United States, and until such return and obedience shall be declared by proclamation of the President, issued by virtue of an act of Congress hereafter to be passed, authorizing the same. Recognizing that a state of war shall be regarded as continuing until it shall be declared no longer to exist by the President in virtue of an act of Congress to be hereafter passed, I am glad to find, by looking at the vote, that the distinguished Senator from Maryland, Mr. Johnson, voted for this proposition, and thus recognized the doctrine for which I am now contending, that the power to execute the guarantee is vested in Congress alone, and that it is for Congress alone to determine the status and condition of those states, and that the President has no power to proclaim peace or to declare the political condition of those states until he shall first have been thereunto authorized by an act of Congress. I therefore, Mr. President, take the proposition as conclusively established, both by reason and authority, that this clause of the Constitution can be executed only by Congress, and taking that as established, I now proceed to consider what are the powers of Congress in the execution of the guarantee, how it shall be executed, and what means may be employed for that purpose. The Constitution does not define the means. It does not say how the guarantee shall be executed. All that is left to the determination of Congress. As to the particular character of the means that must be employed, that, I take it, will depend upon the peculiar circumstances of each case, and the extent of the power will depend upon the other question as to what may be required for the purpose of maintaining or guaranteeing a loyal Republican form of government in each state. I use the word loyal although it is not used in the Constitution, because loyalty is an inhering qualification, not only in regard to persons who are to fill public offices, but in regard to state governments. And we have no right to recognize a state government that is not loyal to the government of the United States. Now, sir, as to the use of means that are not prescribed in the Constitution, I call the attention of the Senate to the 18th clause of Section 8 of the first article of the Constitution of the United States, which declares that the Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or any department or officer thereof. Here is a declaration of what would otherwise be a general principle anyhow, that Congress shall have the power to pass all laws necessary to carry into execution all powers that are vested in the government under the Constitution. As Congress has the power to guarantee or maintain a loyal Republican government in each state, it has the right to use whatever means may be necessary for that purpose. As I before remarked, the character of the means will depend upon the character of the case. In one case it may be the use of an army, in another case perhaps it may be simply presenting a question to the courts, and having it tested in that way. In another case it may go to the very foundation of the government itself, and I now propound this proposition, that if Congress after deliberation, after long and bloody experience, shall come to the conclusion that loyal Republican state governments cannot be erected and maintained in the rebel states upon the basis of the white population, it has a right to raise up and make voters 
of a class of men who had no right to vote under the state laws. This is simply the use of the necessary means in the execution of the guarantee. If we have found after repeated trials that loyal Republican state governments, governments that shall answer the purpose that such governments are intended to answer, cannot be successfully founded upon the basis of the white population, because the great majority of that population are disloyal, then Congress has a right to raise up a new loyal voting population for the purpose of establishing these governments in the execution of the guarantee. I think, sir, this proposition is so clear that it is not necessary to elaborate it. We are not required to find in the Constitution a particular grant of power for this purpose, but we find a general grant of power. And we find also another grant of power authorizing us to use whatever means may be necessary to execute the first. And we find that the Supreme Court of the United States has said that the judgment of Congress upon this question shall be conclusive, that it cannot be reviewed by the courts, that it is a purely political matter, and therefore the determination of Congress, that raising up colored men to the right of suffrage is a means necessary to the execution of that power, is a determination which cannot be reviewed by the courts, and is conclusive upon the people of this country. The President of the United States, assuming that he had the power to execute this guarantee, and basing his proclamation upon it, went forward in the work of Reconstruction. It was understood at that time, it was so announced, if not by himself, at least formally by the Secretary of State. Mr. Seward, that the governments which he would erect during the vacation of Congress were to be erected as provisional only, that his plan of reconstruction and the work that was to be done under it would be submitted to Congress for its approval or disapproval at the next session. If the President had adhered to that determination, I believe that all would have been well, and that the present state of things would not exist. But, sir, the Executive undertook finally to execute the guarantee himself Without the cooperation of Congress, he appointed provisional governors, giving to them unlimited power until such time as the new state governments should be erected. He prescribed in his proclamation who should exercise the right of suffrage in the election of delegates, and allow me for one moment to refer to that. He says in his proclamation, no person shall be qualified as an elector, or shall be eligible as a member of such convention, unless he shall have previously taken and subscribed the oath of amnesty, as set forth in the President's proclamation of May 29, A.D., 1865, which was issued on the same day and was a part of the same transaction, and is a voter qualified as prescribed by the Constitution and laws of the state of North Carolina in force immediately before the 20th day of May, A.D. 1861. The persons having the right to vote must have the right to vote by the laws of the state, and must, in addition to that, have taken the oath of amnesty. The President disfranchised in voting for delegates to the conventions from 250,000 to 300,000 men. His disfranchisement was far greater than that which has been done by Congress. In the proclamation of amnesty, he says, The following classes of persons are accepted from the benefits of this proclamation. He then announced 14 classes of persons. 1. All who are or shall have been pretended civil or diplomatic officers or otherwise domestic or foreign agents 
of the pretended Confederate government. 13. All persons who have voluntarily participated in said rebellion and the estimated value of whose taxable property is over $20,000. And 12 other classes, estimated to number at the least 250,000 or 300,000 men, while the disfranchisement that has been created by Congress does not extend, perhaps, to more than 45,000 or 50,000 persons at the furthest. These provisional governors, under the authority of the President, were to call conventions. They were to hold the elections, and they were to count the votes. They were to exercise all the powers that are being exercised by the military commanders under the Reconstruction Acts of Congress. After those constitutions were formed, the President went forward and accepted them as being loyal and Republican in their character. He authorized the voters under them to proceed and elect legislatures, members of Congress, and the legislatures to elect senators to take their seats in this body. In other words, the President launched those state governments into full life and activity without consultation with or cooperation on the part of Congress. Now, sir, when it is claimed that these governments are legal, let it be remembered that they took their origin under a proceeding instituted by the President of the United States in the execution of this guarantee, when it now stands confessed that he could not execute the guarantee. But even if he had the power, let it be further borne in mind that those constitutions were formed by conventions that were elected by less than one-third of the white voters in the states at that time, that the conventions were elected by a small minority even of the white voters, and that those constitutions thus formed by a very small minority have never been submitted to the people of those states for ratification. They are no more the constitutions of those states today than the constitutions formed by the conventions now in session would be if we were to proclaim them to be the constitutions of those states without first having submitted them to the people for ratification. How can it be pretended for a moment, even admitting that the President had the power to start forward in the work of Reconstruction, that those state governments are legally formed by a small minority, never ratified by the people, the people never having had a chance to vote for them. They stand as mere arbitrary constitutions established not by the people of the several states, but simply by force of executive power. And, sir, if we shall admit those states to representation on this floor and in the other house under those constitutions, when the thing shall have got beyond our keeping, and they are fully restored to their political rights, they will then rise up and declare that those constitutions are not binding upon them, that they never made them, and they will throw them off, and with them will go those provisions which were incorporated therein, declaring that slavery should never be restored, and that their war debt was repudiated. Those provisions were put into those constitutions, but they have never been sanctioned by the people of those states, and they will cast them out as not being their act and deed as soon as they shall have been restored to political power in this government. Therefore I say that even if it be conceded that the President had the power, which he had not, to start forward in the execution of this guarantee, there can still be no pretense that those governments are legal and authorized and that we are bound to recognize them. The President of the United States, 
in his proclamation, declared that those governments were to be formed only by the loyal people of those states, and I beg leave to call the attention of the Senate to that clause in his proclamation of Reconstruction. He says, And with authority to exercise, within the limits of said state, all the powers necessary and proper to enable such loyal people of the state of North Carolina to restore said state to its constitutional relations with the federal government. Again, speaking of the army, and they are enjoined to abstain from in any way hindering, impeding, or discouraging the loyal people from the organization of a state government as herein authorized. Now, sir, so far from those state governments having been organized by the loyal people, they were organized by the disloyal. Every office passed into the hands of a rebel. The Union men had no part or lot in those governments and so far from answering the purpose for which governments are intended, they failed to extend protection to the loyal men, either white or black. The loyal men were murdered with impunity, and I will thank any senator upon this floor to point to a single case in any of the rebel states where a rebel has been tried and brought to punishment by the civil authority for the murder of a Union man. Not one case, I am told, can be found, those governments utterly failed in answering the purpose of civil governments. And not only that, but they returned the colored people to a condition of quasi-slavery. They made them the slaves of society instead of being, as they were before, the slaves of individuals. Under various forms of vagrant laws, they deprived them of the rights of freemen and placed them under the power and control of their rebel masters, who were filled with hatred and revenge. But, Mr. President, time passed on. Congress assembled in December 1865. For a time, it paused. It did not at once annul those governments. It hesitated. At last, in 1866, the Constitutional Amendment, the 14th Article, was brought forward as a basis of settlement and reconstruction, and there was a tacit understanding though it was not embraced in any law or resolution, that if the Southern people should ratify and agree to that amendment, then their state governments would be accepted. But that amendment was rejected, contemptuously rejected. The Southern people, counseled and inspired by the democracy of the North, rejected that amendment. They were told that they were not bound to submit to any conditions whatever, that they had forfeited no rights by rebellion. Why, sir, what did we propose by this amendment? By the first section we declared that all men born upon our soil were citizens of the United States, a thing that had long been recognized by every department of this government until the Dred Scott decision was made in 1857. The second section provided that where a class or race of men were excluded from the right of suffrage, they should not be counted in the basis of representation an obvious justice that no reasonable man for a moment could deny, that if four million people down south were to have no suffrage, the men living in their midst and surrounding them and depriving them of all political rights should not have members of Congress on their account. I say the justice of the second clause has never been successfully impugned by any argument. I care not how ingenious it may be. What was the third clause? It was that the leaders of the South, those men who had once taken an official oath to support the Constitution of the United States, and had afterward committed perjury by going into the rebellion, should be made ineligible to any office under the government of the United States 
or of a state. It was a very small disfranchisement. It was intended to withhold power from those leaders by whom instrumentality we had lost nearly half a million lives and untold treasure. The justice of that disfranchisement could not be disproved, and what was the fourth clause of the amendment, that this government should never assume and pay any part of the rebel debt, that it should never pay the rebels for their slaves. This was bitterly opposed in the North as well as in the South. How could any man oppose that amendment, unless he was in favor of this government assuming a portion or all of the rebel debt, and in favor of paying the rebels for their slaves? When the Democratic Party, North and South, opposed that most important and perhaps hereafter to be regarded as vital amendment, they were committing themselves in principle, as they had been before by declaration, to the doctrine that this government was bound to pay for the slaves, and that it was just and right that we should assume and pay the rebel debt. This amendment, as I have before said, was rejected, and when Congress assembled in December 1866, they were confronted by the fact that every proposition of compromise had been rejected, every halfway measure had been spurned by the rebels, and they had nothing left to do but begin the work of reconstruction themselves. And in February 1867, Congress for the first time entered upon the execution of the guarantee provided for in the Constitution by the passage of the first Reconstruction Law. A supplementary bill was found necessary in March, another one in July, and I believe another is found necessary at this time, but the power is with Congress. Whatever it shall deem necessary, whether it be in the way of military power, whatever Congress shall deem necessary in the execution of this guarantee, is conclusive upon the courts and upon the states. Sir, when Congress entered upon this work, it had become apparent to all men that loyal Republican state governments could not be erected and maintained upon the basis of the white population. We had tried them. Congress had attempted the work of Reconstruction through the constitutional amendment by leaving the suffrage with the white men, and by leaving with the white people of the South the question as to when the colored people should exercise the right of suffrage, if ever. But when it was found that those white men were as rebellious as ever, that they hated this government more bitterly than ever, when it was found that they persecuted the loyal men, both white and black, in their midst, when it was found that northern men who had gone down there were driven out by social tyranny, by a thousand annoyances, by the insecurity of life and property, then it became apparent to all men of intelligence that Reconstruction could not take place upon the basis of the white population, and something else must be done. Now, sir, what was there left to do? Either we must hold these people continually by military power, or we must use such machinery upon such a new basis as would enable loyal Republican state governments to be raised up, and in the last resort, and I will say Congress waited long, the nation waited long, experience had to come to the rescue of reason before the thing was done. In the last resort, and as the last thing to be done, Congress determined to dig through all the rubbish, dig through the soil and the shifting sands, and go down to the eternal rock, and there, upon the basis of the everlasting principle of equal and exact justice to all men, we have planted the column of reconstruction. And, sir, it will arise, slowly but surely, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
whatever dangers we apprehended from the introduction to the right of suffrage of 700,000 men just emerged from slavery were put aside in the presence of a greater danger. Why, sir, let me say frankly to my friend from Wisconsin that I approached universal colored suffrage in the South reluctantly, not because I adhered to the miserable dogma that this was the white man's government, but because I entertained fears about at once entrusting a large body of men just from slavery to whom education had been denied by law, to whom the marriage relation had been denied, who had been made the most abject slaves with political power. And as the senator has referred to a speech which I made in Indiana in 1865, allow me to show the principle that then actuated me, for in that speech I said, in regard to the question of admitting the freedmen of the southern states to vote, while I admit the equal rights of all men, and that in time all men will have the right to vote, without distinction of color or race, I yet believe that in the case of four million of slaves just freed from bondage, there should be a period of probation and preparation before they are brought to the exercise of political power. Such was my feeling at that time, for it had not then been determined by the bloody experience of the last two years that we could not reconstruct upon the basis of the white population, and such was the opinion of a great majority of the people of the North. And it was not until a year and a half after that time that Congress came to the conclusion that there was no way left but to resort to colored suffrage, and suffrage to all men except those who were disqualified by the commission of high crimes and misdemeanors. Mr. President, we hear much said in the course of this debate and through the press about the violation of the Constitution. It is said that in the reconstruction measures of Congress we have gone outside of the Constitution and the remark of some distinguished statesmen of the Republican Party is quoted to that effect. Sir, if any leading Republican has ever said so, he spoke only for himself, not for another. I deny the statement in toto. I insist that these Reconstruction measures are as fully within the powers of the Constitution as any legislation that can be had, not only by reason, but by authority. And who are the men that are talking so much about the violation of the Constitution, and who pretend to be the especial friends of that instrument? The great mass of them, only three years ago, were in arms to overturn the Constitution and establish that of Montgomery in its place. Or were there northern friends who were aiding and sympathizing in that undertaking? I had occasion the other day to speak of what was described as a constitutional union man, a man living inside of the federal lines during the war, sympathizing with the rebellion, and who endeavored to aid the rebellion by insisting that every war measure for the purpose of suppressing it was a violation of the Constitution of the United States. Now these men who claim to be the especial friends of the Constitution are the men who have sought to destroy it by force of arms, and those throughout the country who have given them aid and comfort. Sir, you will remember that once a celebrated French woman was being dragged to the scaffold, and as she passed the Statue of Liberty she exclaimed, How many crimes have been committed in thy name? 
and I can say to the Constitution how many crimes against liberty, humanity, and progress are being committed in thy name by these men who, while they loved not the Constitution and sought its destruction, now, for party purposes, claim to be its especial friends. My friend from Wisconsin yesterday compared what he called the Radical Party of the North to the Radicals of the South, and when he was asked the question by some senator, who are the Radicals of the South, he said, they are the secessionists. Sir, the secessionists of the South are Democrats today, acting in harmony and concert with the Democratic Party. They were Democrats during the war who prayed for the success of McClellan and Pendleton and would have been glad to have voted for them. And they were Democrats before the war and the men who made the rebellion. These are the radicals of the South, and my friend from Wisconsin, after all, is voting with the radicals. The burden of his speech yesterday was that the Reconstruction measures of Congress are intended to establish Negro supremacy. Sir, this proposition is without any foundation whatever. I believe it was stated yesterday by the Senator from Illinois, Mr. Trumbull, that in every state but two, the white voters registered outnumber the colored voters, and the fact that in two states the colored voters outnumbered the white voters is owing to the simple accident that there are more colored men in those states than there are white men. Congress has not sought to establish Negro supremacy, nor has it sought to establish the supremacy of any class or party of men. If it had sought to establish Negro supremacy, it would have been an easy matter by excluding from the right of suffrage all men who had been concerned in the rebellion, in accordance with the proposition of the distinguished senator from Massachusetts, Mr. Sumner, in his speech at Worcester in 1865. He proposed to exclude all men who had been concerned in the rebellion and confer suffrage only on those who were left. That would have established Negro supremacy by giving the Negroes an overwhelming majority in every state, and if that had been the object of Congress, it could have been readily done. But, sir, Congress has only sought to divide the political power between the loyal and the disloyal, it has disfranchised some 50,000 disloyal leaders, leaving all the rest of the people to vote. They have been enfranchised on both sides that neither should be placed in the power of the other. The rebels have the right to vote so that they shall not be under the control and power of the Union men only, and the Union men have been allowed to vote so that they shall not be under the control and power of the rebels. This is the policy to divide the political power among those men for the protection of each. Sir, the charge that we intend to create a Negro supremacy or colored state governments is without the slightest foundation, for it would have been in the power of Congress to have easily conferred such supremacy by simply excluding the disloyal from the right of suffrage, a power which it had the clear right to exercise. Now, Mr. President, allow me to consider for a moment the amendment offered by the senator from Wisconsin, and upon which his speech was made, and see what is its effect. I will not say its purpose, but its inevitable effect, should it become a law. I will ask the secretary to read the amendment which the senator from Wisconsin has proposed to the Senate. The secretary read as follows. 
provided, nevertheless, that upon an election for the ratification of any constitution or of officers under the same, previous to its adoption in any state, no person not having the qualifications of an elector under the constitution and laws of such state, previous to the late rebellion, shall be allowed to vote, unless he shall possess one of the following qualifications, namely, 1. He shall have served as a soldier in the federal army for one year or more. 2. He shall have a sufficient education to read the Constitution of the United States and to subscribe his name to an oath to support the same. Or 3. He shall be seized in his own right, or in the right of his wife, of a freehold of the value of $250. Mr. Morton. Sir, these qualifications are, by the terms of the amendment, to apply to those who were not authorized to vote by the laws of the state before the rebellion. In other words, the colored men. He proposes to allow a colored man to vote if he has been in the federal army one year, and he proposes to allow a rebel white man to vote, although he has served in the rebel army for years. He proposes that a colored man shall not vote unless he has sufficient education to read the Constitution of the United States and to subscribe his name to an oath to support the same, whereas he permits a rebel white man to vote who never heard of A and does not know how to make his mark, even to a note given for whiskey. Laughter. Again, sir, he proposes that the colored man shall not vote unless he shall be seized in his own right or in the right of his wife of a freehold of the value of $250, a provision which, of course, would cut off 999 out of every thousand colored men in the South. The colored man cannot vote unless he has a freehold of $250, but the white rebel who was never worth 25 cents, who never paid poll tax in his life, never paid an honest debt, is to be allowed to vote. Sir, what would be the inevitable effect of the adoption of this amendment? To cut off such a large part of the colored vote as to leave the rebel white vote largely in the ascendancy and to put these new state governments there to be formed again into the hands of the rebels. Sir, I will not spend longer time upon that. My friend yesterday alluded to my endorsement of the President's policy in a speech in 1865. I never endorsed what is now called the President's policy. In the summer of 1865, when I saw a division coming between the President and the Republican Party, and when I could not help anticipating the direful consequences that must result from it, I made a speech in which I repelled certain statements that had been made against the President, and denied the charge that by issuing his proclamation of May 29, 1865, he had thereby left the Republican Party. I said that he had not left the Republican Party by that act. I did show that the policy of that proclamation was even more radical than that of Mr. Lincoln. I did show that it was more radical even than the Winter Davis Bill of the summer of 1864. But, sir, it was all upon the distinct understanding that whatever the President did, that his whole policy or action was to be submitted to Congress for its consideration and decision, and, as I before remarked, if that had been done, all would have been well. I did not, then, advocate universal colored suffrage in the South, and I have before given my reasons for it, and in doing that I was acting in harmony with the great body of the Republican Party of the North.
It was nearly a year after that time when Congress passed the Constitutional Amendment, which still left the question of suffrage with the southern states, left it with the white people. And it was not until a year and a half after that time that Congress came to the conclusion that we could not execute the guarantee of the Constitution without raising up a new class of loyal voters. And, sir, nobody concurred in that result more heartily than myself. I confess, and I do it without shame, that I have been educated by the great events of the war. The American people have been educated rapidly, and the man who says he has learned nothing, that he stands now where he did six years ago, is like an ancient milepost by the side of a deserted highway. We, Mr. President, have advanced step by step. When this war began, we did not contemplate the destruction of slavery. I remember well when the Crittenden Resolution was passed, declaring that the war was not prosecuted for conquest or to overthrow the institution of any state. I know that that was intended as an assurance that slavery should not be destroyed, and it received the vote, I believe, of every Republican member in both houses of Congress. But in a few months after that time, it was found by the events of the war that we could not preserve slavery and suppress the rebellion, and we must destroy slavery. Not prosecute the war to destroy slavery, but destroy slavery to prosecute the war. Which was the better? To stand by the resolution and let the Union go, or stand by the Union and let the resolution go? Congress could not stand by that pledge, and it was more honored in the breach than the observance. Mr. Lincoln issued his proclamation of emancipation, setting free the slaves of the rebels. It was dictated by the stern and bloody experience of the times. Mr. Lincoln had no choice left him. When we began this contest, no one thought we would use colored soldiers in the war. The distinguished senator sitting by me here, Mr. Cameron, when in the winter of 1861 he first brought forward the proposition as Secretary of War to use colored soldiers was greatly in advance of public opinion and was thought to be visionary. But as the war progressed, it became manifest to all intelligent men that we must not only destroy slavery, but we must avail ourselves of every instrumentality in our power for the purpose of putting down the rebellion. And the whole country accorded in the use of colored soldiers and gallant and glorious service they rendered. In 1864, a proposition was brought forward in this body to amend the Constitution of the United States by abolishing slavery. We do not think that this is very radical now, but it was very radical then. It was the great measure of the age and almost of modern times. And it was finally passed, an amendment setting free every human being within the limits of the United States. But, sir, we were very far then from where we are now. All will remember the celebrated Winter Davis Bill, passed in June 1864, which took the power of Reconstruction out of the hands of the President, where it did not, in fact, belong. I refer to Mr. Lincoln, but if that bill had passed, it would perhaps have resulted in the destruction of this government. We can all see it now, although it was then thought to be the most radical measure of the times. What did it propose? It proposed to prescribe a plan to take effect when the war should end, by which these rebel states should be restored. I refer to that bill simply to show how we have all traveled. It required but one condition or guarantee 
on the part of the South, and that was that they should put in their constitutions a provision prohibiting slavery. It required no other guarantee. It required no equalization of representation, no security against rebel debts or against payments for emancipated slaves, and it confined the right of suffrage to white men, but it was thought to be a great step in advance of the time, and so it was. But events were passing rapidly, and in 1865 the President came forward with his proposition, and I am stating what is true from an examination of the documents when I say that, but for the want of power with the President, his scheme, in itself considered, was far more radical than that of the Winter Davis Bill, but events were rapidly teaching the statesmen of the time that we could not reconstruct upon that basis. Still, Congress was not prepared to take a forward step until the summer of 1866 in the passage of the Constitutional Amendment, which we now regard as a halfway measure, necessary and vital as far as it went, but not going far enough. That was rejected, and we were then compelled to go further, and we have now fallen upon the plan of reconstruction which I have been considering. It has been dictated by the logic of events. It overrides all arguments, overrides all prejudices, overrides all theory, in the presence of the necessity for preserving the life of this nation. And if future events shall determine that we must go further, I, for one, am prepared to say that I will go as far as shall be necessary to the execution of this guarantee, the reconstruction of this republic upon a right basis, and the successful restoration of every part of this union. Mr. President, the column of reconstruction, as I before remarked, has risen slowly. It has not been hewn from a single stone. It is composed of many blocks, painfully laid up and put together, and cemented by the tears and blood of the nation. Sir, we have done nothing arbitrarily. We have done nothing for punishment. I, too little for punishment. Justice has not had her demand. Not a man has yet been executed for this great treason. The arch-fiend himself is now at liberty upon bail. No man is to be punished, and now, while punishment has gone by, as we all know, we are insisting only upon security for the future. We are simply asking that the evil spirits who brought this war upon us shall not again come into power during this generation, again to bring upon us rebellion and calamity. We are simply asking for those securities that we deem necessary for our peace and the peace of our posterity. Sir, there is one great difference between this Union Party and the so-called Democratic Party. Our principles are those of humanity. They are those of justice. They are those of equal rights. They are principles that appeal to the hearts and the consciences of men while on the other side we hear appeals to the prejudice of race against race. The white man is overwhelmingly in the majority in this country, and that majority is yearly increased by half a million of white men from abroad, and that majority gaining in proportion from year to year until the colored men will finally be but a handful in this country. And yet we hear the prejudices of the white race appealed Two, to crush this other race, and to prevent it from rising to supremacy and power. Sir, there is nothing noble, there is nothing generous, there is nothing lovely in that policy or that appeal. How does that principle compare with ours? We are standing upon the broad platform of the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We say that these rights are not given by laws, are not given by the Constitution, but they are the gift of God to every man born in the world. Oh, sir, how glorious is this great principle compared with the inhuman, I might say the heathenish, appeal to the prejudice of race against race, the endeavor further to excite the strong against the weak, the endeavor further to deprive the weak of their rights of protection against the strong. Woohoo! Yeah! Ah, that was satisfying. It's probably just a pedant in me, but I love the way he deconstructs the argument, picks apart all of the nuances of the Constitution and the responsibilities of office, and then cements it with passionate invocations of human rights. And, oh my God, how uncomfortable is it to listen to that Doolittle speech? That's the worst part of rhetorical arguments of this time. They are so well-constructed, and such a large percentage of the argument sounds reasonable, but then it's marbled with this horrific racism. So you're going along and listening to it, and you're thinking, well, that actually sounds kind of reasonable. Oh... Oh, oh my. Oh, now I see what's lurking under all those pretty words. You're just a monster. On the other hand, we have to remember what Morton said about only recently coming around to his view on emancipation. Up until just a couple of years before that speech, Morton more or less agreed with Doolittle, at least in a functional capacity. This is important to me from the perspective of historiography, because growing up in the Northeast, I was taught a couple of myths about the Civil War. The first one that most people are taught was that the Civil War was about states' rights and not slavery. Well, you read the newspapers from this time and they put the lie to that really quickly. The second one was that the Northerners were the good guys and the Southerners were the bad guys. Now, I don't think anyone who taught me put it in such simplistic terms, but that was the takeaway. But you read the newspapers from this time and you see just how many Northerners there were who agreed part and parcel with the most vicious slavery apologists of the South. And that's important for us to remember. Because although the Civil War was, at its core, about slavery, it took the country a couple of years to realize that. Well, there'll be a lot more along those lines in the coming weeks. But for now, this is way longer than I expected it to be, so I just need to thank you. If you're listening, after all of this, I owe you one, buddy. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, and my love he stole away.